Welcome to Management 101, your home for learning about management and leadership in business. Now, here is your host, Max Winokur. Hello, and welcome back to Management 101. I am your host, Max Winokur. Today, I am joined by a friend and former colleague, Chrissy Donnelly, who has a very uh, informed perspective on some of the topics we discuss on this show, in particular around founders and founders as leaders. So I asked Chrissy to join me today to help me talk through this topic of what makes a good founder. The reason I think it's useful to talk about this is because a lot of people, most founders are first-time founders. Uh, They are someone who's come up with an idea and wants to create a business out of it. And there is a wide range of good and bad founders. Hopefully, if we do our jobs today and a potential founder or a current founder listens to this episode, there will be some things that they don't realize that they're doing or not doing that they could change to become a better founder and leader and be more likely to be successful. And there are maybe some things that they don't realize they are doing that are good and that they could further accentuate. All that being said, I'm going to turn this over to Chrissy. Chrissy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Matt. A couple questions for you. One, okay. where are you based? And two, tell us a little bit. I guess this isn't a question. This is a statement or a request. Tell us a little bit about your background, where we work together, what you do now, any other big highlights of the career. Awesome. First of all, thanks, Max, for having me excited. We started having this conversation in a one-on-one a few months back, so excited that we're finally getting to have it in this forum. So where am I based? I am based in the beautiful state of Quintana Roo in Mexico, in the city of Cancun. Max and I worked together at Uber in Mexico City back in 2018. Career highlights on my part. I started my career in finance and investment banking, an unlikely place to start a career working with founders, then moved to a private equity fund, then joined my first startup, which was a nonprofit based in Colombia run by folks who had gone to school for government from the Kennedy School of Government. And after that experience, I was like, wow, I should get an MBA and work with people who are trained to do this kind of thing. Worked at Rappi briefly, which was at the time a very small startup in Colombia, is now a unicorn. Then joined Uber in Mexico for a number of years where I had the fortune of working with Max. Joined a Series A startup in the fintech space after that, and then most recently have been doing two things with my time. One is consulting and mentoring for startups, particularly working with founders, and also doing angel investing. I've been doing that for a number of years now, so I've had the opportunity to work with founders both as an advisor, kind of on their side, and then also thinking about when making investments from a monetary cold perspective, or at least in a decision-making perspective of where do I want to put my own money when thinking about who's going to be a great founder, having the opportunity to do both sides of those things. You bring an interesting and perhaps more useful perspective in many ways, because not only are you observing founders from the perspective of, I am working for these companies, and you've worked for a number of small startups turned big ones, Rappi and Uber are two of the I think, darlings of the Latin America tech space in many ways. You've also worked Mm -hmm. with some smaller ones that continue to be small and you work very closely with Mm -hmm. those founders. But you've also 
put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and literally are taking the information you've gotten from your career around what makes a good or a bad founder and deciding how to invest the money accordingly. So mm-hmm. hopefully for you tens of listeners out there, this is uh, <laughs> an even more informed perspective than we normally get because this is from an investment perspective as well. And yep. one thing I'll also note that you do in your consulting work, which I think is is quite relevant to the discussion, is you spend a lot of time helping founders build pitch decks and yeah. figure out how to raise money. You're very familiar with the VC space. So your perspective also, I think, is informed by what makes a good founder in the sense of a founder who can raise money. Yes. It'll be fun to get into this because to me, those are very different things. A founder that can raise money and a founder who can build a sustainably profitable company. And so one thing is what are VCs looking for? And another thing is what do I personally think makes a great founder? Sure. Yeah. And we actually, in the show notes, we went back and forth a little bit on define good because yes, good could mean many things in the context of what makes a good founder. We'll get into that. All right. Let's start off with common themes among the best founders you worked with. And this is the start of the back and forth of what does best mean? And I think ultimately the way I define best here is most successful. And I think success is did someone build a single or series of companies that were sustainably profitable? Is this company still a going concern and has a lot of value and is hopefully sustainably profitable? Yeah. Would you add to that scale? Because you could have a very successful founder that has got a nice little business that isn't necessarily a unicorn. That's an interesting point. Maybe I'll split this into a couple of parts because I think that there are multiple versions of successful companies. There are the scaled unicorns, the Ubers of Mm -hmm. the world, certainly the founders of those large unicorns have been successful in some way. I also think that a startup that turns into a quote-unquote lifestyle business, one mm-hmm. that maybe didn't become a unicorn, but is throwing off cash and is rewarding investors, shareholders, and, and employees, that's certainly a win too. Also think a successful founder could be someone who built a company to a certain point and then recognized I am now at the point where I am no longer the right fit for the next stage of growth and is self-aware enough to say, in order to take this company to the next level, it has to be someone else doing this thing. A successful founder doesn't have to be someone who brought it from zero all the way to the end. It could just be a founder who brought it to whatever point was within their wheelhouse, did it well, and set it up to be taken to the next level by whoever that next more professional CEO might be. Yeah, I think that's right. The handover piece of that, handing them something that can then be turned into whatever the next stage is, rather than maybe clawing onto it to the last minute and leaving them something that's going to be a lot harder to bring to the next step. Exactly. Maybe that's one of the things we'll get into in the not successful piece of this. But it's certainly, um, it's not all that uncommon for a founder to hold on too long and lack the self-awareness to say, okay, this is probably not where I'm going to be most successful. Yep. Let's talk through 
two to three things that you think are common themes amongst the founders you've worked with that you thought were the best? The first one that comes to mind, and I see this particularly in my clients, which I've now been working with many of them for quite some time, and they're quite varied. A common theme I see among them is just a really strong drive and energy. And I think a lot of the things that are able to come out of that. So if you have a super strong drive and energy, you're going to be able to come back from setbacks. You're going to be able to pivot when you need to. You're going to have the energy to make those adjustments that you need to. Definitely building a company is a marathon and not a sprint. So someone who's really seeing that longer picture, whether that. that comes from a clear vision or just having a ton of energy about a certain space or a certain problem, that's something that I see as a common theme among my most successful clients. Is it possible for a founder to be lazy and figure out the most direct or shortcut ways of getting things done? Ooh, that's a great question. I don't think you ever see successful, lazy founders, but there is something to be said for the founder that is more efficient because you could spend 24 hours a day working on any startup, and that is obviously not sustainable. So the founder that does a good job of replacing themselves, and that'll get to hiring, which I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. I don't know if that's laziness. I would say that's more strategy. Strategic laziness in the sense that yeah, I am strategic figuring out how, laziness. how I can no longer do this thing. I agree with yeah. you. I think that there are certainly a founder needs energy and hustle, the desire or motivation to constantly keep going because a startup is not a staid entity. It's constantly evolving. There's new information coming from the marketplace. There's new information coming from customers. There's all kinds of new priorities that may arise as the company's strategy changes. There's all kinds of challenges that are constantly coming up that the one six months from now might be completely different from the ones today. And it might be really hard to prepare for the one six months from now. You really need to focus on the ones today to even get to that point six months from now. Definitely founders need energy. I do think, and you alluded to this a little bit, there are two versions of energy. There's the, I'm just going to push and then yeah. there's the strategic version of that. Yeah. yeah. I imagine you have also seen founders and managers more generally who don't figure out how to scale themselves. And while they work really hard, they've also, as the company has grown, become the bottleneck to anything else getting done yes. without them. Yes, absolutely. And that was something that I already had in my worst founders list is... The folks that either can't or won't hire a great team around them and empower that team. The flip side of that on the great, which I had on my list, was founders that do a really good job of surrounding themselves with great people and are really able to take advantage of the great people that they've surrounded themselves with. Everyone says, yes, you're a founder, you should surround yourself with great people, but then also be open to for those people that are advisors to take in what all your advisors are saying and be open to feedback and be humble and adjust. And then for the folks that you actually bring on your team, be willing to hire people that are better than you in every aspect so that your salesperson is a better salesman than you, that your marketing person is a better marketer than you, 
and empower those people so that you don't become the single point of failure in your startup. That is well put and something I wish more founders heeded. All right. Next thing. What's another top thing that is a common theme amongst best founders you've worked with? The last thing that I would say I see as a theme among both startups I've worked for and worked with is where the founder really personally cares about the problem that they are working on um, and is really motivated about the mission. I think this is something that we saw when we were at Uber, actually, is how much people were willing to run through walls because the importance of the mission was very clear to everyone from top down. And it really led to the whole company moving really strongly in one direction. In companies where the connection that the founder has to the mission of the company or what they're trying to do is either more tenuous or not clear to everyone in the organization, you don't have the same level of A, strategic alignment around what we're trying to do, and then B, everyone bringing their energy to it. I've thought about this a lot because I think I agree with you, but I also want to believe that there are exceptions too. I think about it from my own life. And if I were to be a founder of a more than one person consulting firm, what would that company do? And I look back at my career, the things that I most enjoyed or the things that would really make me run through walls. And Mm -hmm. There's a common theme amongst types of problems that I'm more interested in. For instance, if I were to ever have the opportunity to work at an airline, and to be clear, world, this is not a sales pitch. Uh, There are no air, unfortunately, no airlines based in San Diego, California. But if I were to ever work for an airline, I could imagine pretty much any job there being something that I'd want to run through a wall for. I just find the space Mm -hmm. and the set of problems so fascinating. Whereas... If you had me working for a clubbing baby seals company, I would probably be really unexcited about every single thing that I had to do there. But I think that there's a middle ground. So I will say that despite spending the longest part of my career at Uber, I don't think I'm personally particularly passionate about ride sharing. To be fair, I'm not Travis Kalanick. I'm not the founder of Uber. But I think what motivated me was the environment in which I got to solve problems. It was Mm -hmm. very white space. It it wasn't just fix this specific problem and then fix this next specific problem. It was like, we don't know exactly what problems exist. And it's part of your job to figure them out and then go solve them. And part of it was the people I got to do it with, right? I've worked at some companies where the quality of my coworkers of my management was relatively low. Yeah. Whereas at Uber, I feel like I was surrounded by smart people who really could help me solve problems and who I enjoyed learning from. And it was those two things together that made it an environment where I would run through walls. Is it possible for that to be true for a founder? I wonder if the common denominator there is not necessarily, is it mission or is it hiring? Because people join startups for different reasons, but that it's the founder's ability to bring on great people. So great people could choose to join because they are super motivated about the mission. That's maybe one cohort. And then there's the Max Swenikers that are excited to join. And I actually fall in this category 
because you're inspired by the other people that work there. Sure. And so those two things maybe feed on each other. So yeah, ultimately, that's fair. it might be going back to our previous point, which is ability to surround yourself with great people and develop that team. Maybe there's a middle ground here, which is ultimately if a founder hires a bunch of really great people, but all of whom are doing entirely different things from each other in not a concerted, organized effort, it doesn't really matter if they're doing great work. That work won't build on itself and the company won't move forward. If it's not passionate about a specific problem, that is the rally and cry for everyone. The founder needs to at least be good at focusing everyone on the right strategic problems to be solved. Yeah. Because it's yeah. not just a question of hiring the right people and, and enabling them. It's also pointing them in the, in the right direction. And I think typically, particularly in an early stage startup, the mission is that it is the single problem that everyone wants to solve when you think back to the early days of uber for example it was just we need to democratize transportation mm -hmm. and create income opportunities for transportation workers that just lent itself to let's try to get cars on the road that wasn't hard as a rallying cry but you could easily see a world where People are working on something that maybe doesn't create the same level of passion. We're making some widget to make hospitals slightly more organized. I don't know. Something that maybe doesn't tie directly back to, oh, this is creating some public good. Something that's harder to rally mm -hmm. around. So long as the founder is saying, here is the single problem or set of problems we want to be solving right now, you could probably create some similar sense of mission, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's a good distinction because I'm thinking now about, especially in later stage companies, a client that I have that's in the 150 person size. And at that stage, your mission and your vision and your strategy are not necessarily all the same thing. When you're one person, it's probably all the same thing because it's very specific. True. Um, but you can have a 150 person company where the mission of democratizing transportation is still very clear, but the strategy of, okay, therefore we're going to focus on flying cars is not obvious or yep. whatever it is that we're all running behind. One of the things I think is interesting about the concept of mission, I'm curious if you've experienced this too. I have seen a pretty consistent theme in startups as they've grown, and particularly as they've raised more money, where... Mm -hmm. They go from very mission-driven to losing mm -hmm. that theme as they grow. I think when money is raised, particularly from VC, their venture capital, there becomes a second set of incentives, so to speak, mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. growth and profitability and pretty lofty targets that need to be hit. And sometimes that means companies will cut corners on the mission. And over time, that thread of the mission is lost. Is that something you have seen as well? And then second of all, how do you solve for that as a founder? Is it focusing on strategic priorities and rallying people around those instead of problem? Is it getting the company back to the problem? I'm curious. It's interesting that you say that because the example that I had in mind of a company that was super mission-driven has taken zero VC dollars and had scaled to the size that they have today. And perhaps that makes it easier for them to stay mission-driven because they don't have these competing priorities. 
How do you say mission-driven as you scale, especially when you're taking outside investment? Or how do you Um, replace mission-driven and keep people focused? The first thing I would say is if you can keep the mission driven, that would be my option A, which is maybe not always possible. So then we'll come to option B. In order to start with option A and try and keep that as much as possible, what I always tell my clients that are looking to raise VC money is that you really need to reverse interview your investors. You want an investor that is aligned with you on the mission of the company, ideally on the vision, but at least on the mission, because all decision making is going to come from there. And especially in a market like this, where it's very hard to raise funds, people are going to be very tempted to take money from an investor that's not necessarily aligned on their mission. And that's where you're going to get more apparent these types of conflicts. That's the first thing that I would say to minimize this. But I think your point is that this is always going to be attention as you scale and the mission-driven aspect of it is less prevalent or less infused in the company as you grow because as you get bigger, everyone's job becomes more specific and you're more disconnected from how you're impacting the mission. So even if you've never taken any outside investment, if you are at a thousand-person company Understanding how your specific task that you're doing on a given day impacts the mission is just going to become a less direct relationship. So then how do you get everyone rowing in the same direction when you don't have the benefit of, oh, I'm coming to work every day to directly impact the mission? And this is actually a lot of the work that we did in corporate strategy at Uber when Uber was a many thousand person company, which was actually building a coherent strategy, which is something that I think you start to need to do once you get to that size of saying there's a lot of things we could go after. There's a million problems we could solve. The one that we're picking is this one. And we're not picking all these other problems and the ability to say no and be very clear about what you're not doing. And then if everyone is clear on this is the problem that we're picking and why, then you're more likely to see people rowing in the same direction. Something you and I worked on together was the 2018 Latin America ride strategy. And this was in mid or late 2017. I don't remember all of the details at this point because it's been six years, but I can vividly remember a triangle of priorities that was something like quality, safety, and trust. Something like that, right? And particularly quality was the area that I was most focused on in driver operations. Mm The fact that I remember that six years on because the organization's leaders had really boiled down our focus to those three things and nothing else, I think speaks volumes about how impactful a good strategy can be, particularly when it says not just here's what we're focused on and why, but also more importantly for almost every startup, here's what we're not going to be doing. Because to me, that's the number one failure of most startup leaders as the company grows is they think. I have more people, I can take on more priorities. And if anything, the answer is the opposite, which is the more people, the more diffusion the message is going to have, and therefore the tighter it needs to be. It's really easy for you and five other employees to just have everything in your brains be the same about what needs to get done and why. It's a lot harder for you and 500 people to have everything in your brains be the same. And therefore you really need to distill that message and be 
very deliberate and judicious around what your priorities are. They aren't. Yes, a thousand percent. I don't think I've ever seen a strategy that I thought was too focused. <laughs> yes, I've that's not a thing. I've seen strategies where they tried to pack in a couple of extra things. And I think when we were looking at change management specifically at Uber, because obviously the, ch- the strategy or the focus would change a bit, one of the pieces of research that we came across said that as a leader, you should be saying, repeating yourself 10 times more than you think you need to be repeating yourself about what the strategy is, safety, quality, trust. You should be tired of hearing yourself say it over and over again because you are hearing yourself say it at every meeting, but the people that are in meetings with you are only in a meeting with you maybe once a month. Right. And so they're only hearing it once a month. Also, the worst that happens is they get tired of you saying it, and that means it's in their brain to the point that they don't need to hear it again. That's a great problem. Seared into their brains. Exactly. Let's go to the opposite question now. I feel like this is a great deep dive, first of all, so thank you for the thoughts. Just as a brief recap, maybe before we get to the next thing. Top two to three Mm -hmm. things Chrissy thinks are the most common themes amongst best founders she has worked with. Energy. Surrounding themselves with great people and caring about the problem. Let's go to the opposite. Yeah. Common themes amongst the worst founders you've worked with, and obviously you should name them all by name. I'm just okay. <laughs> I will plead the fifth in case anyone <laughs> asks me for specifics. I'll try to not make this the opposite of just what we've said in the best founders, but a common theme that I see both companies I've worked for, worked with, and just seen from afar It's the founder motivation. A founder, for example, that wants to be a unicorn founder and that is their motivation or their goal, that's what they're going to work towards versus a founder that wants to build a great company or a founder that really wants to have an impact in a specific space. Whatever it is you're motivated by, that's what is going to drive how you spend your time, what your actions are. And so if you're motivated by getting on the cover of Forbes, your business will reflect that. One of my clients had a founder is exactly like you're describing, was really focused on publicity and raising a unicorn round and did those things. To the naked eye, this company seemed quite successful. But then once I got into the weeds a little bit, I realized All of this was at the expense of doing things in the right way, of building Mm -hmm. proper infrastructure, of hiring really good people versus people who were just attracted to all the publicity and potential valuation. It was at the expense of a long-term strategy because the only focus was on growing enough to raise that round. Mm, Uh, It was This is uh, a familiar story. I'm sure. I'm sure this is really common. I wish that I could send almost every founder to therapy to unpack what it is that makes them need to raise money at a billion dollar valuation. But my next client after that was a company where the founder heard me talk about not obviously the name of this previous company, but one of my previous clients. And I was describing this phenomenon of, I think even I was a little bit starstruck by how well publicized and well branded this company was only to discover that it was a wolf in sheep's clothing. No, that's too aggressive a metaphor. Something not as great surrounded by something that looks good, that the Prometheus Epimetheus 
mythology story. I don't remember the details, but something like it was dressed up nicely and underneath was something not so Maybe Wizard of Oz, Man Behind the Curtain. Yeah, exactly right. There's something there, but it's not exactly what you thought. Right. Or if anything, it was dressed up to cover what was truly something not impressive. I was talking to this next founder who said, I've seen a lot of companies like that. And they said, I have focused my company on not raising money at all unless we have to. We avoid the press because it doesn't really do anything for us. And my focus is on building the company, not on getting the name out there. I would happily have a unicorn company that no one had ever heard of because Mm -hmm. every single effort I make towards getting publicity and raising money from big name investors is taking away from building. And I hadn't really thought about it exactly in those terms. I had just come away from this previous experience thinking this wasn't what I expected it to be. But when this founder put it like that, I thought that was really well said of actually having the improper motivation and focusing externally can really come at the expense of doing things correctly internally and building a real company. I would say it really depends. There are many companies that benefit a lot. Their strategy benefits a lot from having a very well put together PR strategy. That's fair. Because it's, for example, there's network effects in the company. So the more people who have heard of the company, the more people who are likely to use it. If no one has heard of Uber, it's hard for Uber to be successful because you need riders and drivers to know that they need to use this platform. That's true. So it's not that every founder that is seeking publicity and there are certain companies where raising VC money makes a lot of sense because you need to do a lot of investment in order to reach the scale where the company makes sense. But I would say it's motivation to do that regardless of whether it aligns with your company's strategy. I wonder if some of it is how much of this is the company getting publicity versus how much of it is the founder getting Mm. publicity. Because I think those are very different things. There is definitely a point in Uber's journey where the the story became a lot more about the now ex-CEO than it did about the company right? Yeah. Uber was becoming infamous for that rather than that being a PR strategy. And I don't think the then CEO would have said, oh, I wanted this. But I think that there were some common themes in behaviors that were really, if anything, meant to almost taunt public regulators, other entities, rather than let's figure out how to make the story not about us. Yes. And he basically left the company with a lot of debt in terms of relationships with governments, relationship with users, reputational debt. So when we get you handing it over, well, yeah, for sure. That's a big piece of it. Okay. So improper motivation. Couldn't agree more. What's the next one? So I don't know if this is related or separate, but a founder that is, for whatever reason, disconnected from their business. So that could come from I'm motivated to get on the cover of Forbes, and therefore, I don't really care what this company does or how we get there as long as I get on the cover of Forbes. But that can come from a number of places. So either you don't care deeply enough about the problem that you're solving, you are not equipped to properly solve that problem, you are not the right person to be leading this company, or You are not hiring people that are allowing you to stay enough in the weeds that you know what is going on, but scale. 
what I've seen from founders from early stages through later stages is thinking that, oh, I've got people that will do this as an excuse for not really deeply understanding your own business. It's almost over delegation in some ways. That's a good question. Where does this come from? It's not a question of delegation, but a question of focus. Maybe this comes back to our previous point where your focus is not on figuring out your business model. The best GMs at Uber, you remember, would be looking at the numbers for their city every week, every month. They really were focused on what the business was doing. Yeah. And then I guess your focus is on other things. And there's a lot of things that founders can get distracted by. It could be raising money. It could be the publicity. It could be these other things that we've talked about. But allowing yourself, I think, to get too distracted by all the other things that are all the other shiny objects and getting away from your core business. Yes. Shiny object syndrome. I do think it is related somewhat to improper motivation, but it's more distraction than purposeful. Improper motivation is I purposely want these things that are not aligned with what's needed for the business to be successful. Whereas shiny object syndrome is just, I get easily distracted, right? It's a little bit less intentional, but is equally, I think, problematic. I have definitely had managers and founders I've worked with who were constantly thinking about something different than what we discussed the previous day. And that I would often think, why does this matter at all? It's pretty easy to see when a leader or a founder is getting distracted by something that probably isn't all that relevant in the grand scheme of things. And it's pretty common, I think, for that to happen. So that's actually what I was just reflecting as you said this, is the shiny object syndrome seems to be particularly common among founders. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on why that is because it's clearly from our conversation seems like not a good thing but something that we see so often so i have a couple thoughts on this one is founders typically are the people that are the least managed in a company Mm -hmm. right as a founder and not having a weekly one-on-one with my board members to get feedback and to discuss priorities so there are a lot fewer checks and balances oh that's a really interesting point find some mid-level manager at a company like Uber or even a hundred person startup, I have someone above me who's saying you're getting distracted. Whereas a founder doesn't necessarily have that except once every quarter in the board meeting. And that's only if a board is really attuned to what is happening in the company, which is incredibly unlikely for the most part. And so I think one is there's just no rails. Yeah. I think the other is Who self-selects into the founder bucket versus the average human being, I think, tends to be someone who likes to jump around and focus on a bunch of different things. They're literally opting into a job that requires you to do a ton of different stuff. And it's a kind of unique skill set to both be able to focus on a ton of different things, all of which have totally different contexts. If I'm putting on my marketing hat in the morning and and putting on my ops hat in the afternoon and my sales hat the next morning. Those are totally unrelated things in many ways. It seems like a not that far leap to then have that person also be easily distracted. Yeah. 
I think both of those make a lot of sense. I think the great thing about what you're saying is that we're saying that this is a theme among the worst founders. Yes. But the shiny object syndrome actually, I think, is something that can be managed. It's not like this is a trait that a founder has that you just that is immutable. But that I think is why executive coaching has become so popular because it's not a manager, but it is someone that you are checking in with ideally on a very regular basis. And there's accountability mechanisms that you put in place with your executive coach. That is true. Um, it's essentially to, a manager. You're right. It is a form of a manager. The problem is it goes back to the self-selecting pool. Those who choose to engage executive coach often are those who are the most willing to adjust and to be mm, told yeah. they're doing things wrong. And there's a population of founders who genuinely believe they know better than others. I would be willing to bet a lot of money on the percent of founders who have narcissistic tendencies versus the percent of the average population that has narcissistic tendencies is much higher. And I think something that comes from that is a, is a belief that I know better than other people. I think this is like a pretty classic saying in behavioral therapy of you can only really help someone if they want to change. And I think that's yes. true of a certain bucket of founders as well, who maybe even will engage an executive coach because their board has asked them to, or mm -hmm. any other number of reasons besides, I really want to hear what I'm doing. Many will engage an executive coach and simply not listen. Many also will simply not engage an executive coach at all because they don't want those checks and balances. I actually am going to expand on this point a little bit in the disconnect from the business that we originally talked about because I think it's along the same lines. One of the red flags for me around a founder is how much control they attempt to retain as the mm. company grows, and in particular, yeah. a board setup. I've seen multiple versions of boards. I've seen the rubber stamp boards that don't have majority voting power, where the CEO or founder retains basically majority control on their own and has installed figureheads rather than actual helpful board members. And then I've seen boards that engage in constructive dialogue and in, at times tension with the executive team. To me, now having watched this play out on both sides repeatedly, I think I would always opt to work with a founder who creates checks and balances over one who attempts to retain total control. I think the reasons that they attempt to retain total control to them are, I know my business better than anyone else does, and I can't predict what a set of board members will do. I need the ability to run my business. But I think what inevitably happens almost every time is like a dictator, the motivations change or simply that founder is trying to retain control such that no one can check them. And yeah. even if board members might make bad decisions, sometimes they're also a kind of necessary piece of the checks and balance system in a company. And I think I would pretty aggressively avoid working with a founder who has created a kangaroo court of a board. What's interesting about your earlier point that this type of tendency is more common among founders, there's research that shows that folks who are 
overconfident are more likely to become founders. (laughs) But being overconfident does not make you more likely to be successful. This was some research that I found in The Unicorn's Shadow, if you want to check out that book. But yeah, this overconfidence, you can see how if you're overconfident, you would be more likely to start a startup knowing that your chances of failure are 90%. That makes a lot of sense. But then also that will potentially come back to bite you where you aren't bringing in both in your board and in your team, folks that you really allow to challenge you and help you become better. So yeah, I would be, agree, very hesitant to work with a founder that really only has these things in name. There's a couple examples of massive companies. I think Mark Zuckerberg managed to retain super control of his board while taking investment, which given the ups and downs that Facebook is having today, was that a good strategy? Was that a bad strategy? Depends on what year you ask. I also think that outcomes do not reflect quality of process. In a normal distribution curve, there will be extreme outcomes on either end. If you played out that Facebook scenario a thousand times, it wouldn't end up with remarkable growth story and success over time every single time. Bad decisions can lead to good outcomes sometimes, just like good decisions can lead to bad outcomes sometimes. I think it's a question around the process. And for every Facebook where the founder retained majority control, there are many other not so success stories where that didn't play out that way. And I think generally that to me means that When you look at that same process reflected over many outcomes, if the consistent outcome is not a good one, that probably means the process is not the right one. Yes. For every Facebook, you can think of a dozen examples where things went terribly awry and who was on their audit board or who was the board member who was the, the audit chairman or this and that. And that is where stuff shows up. They actually offered, when I was getting my MBA at Stanford, a class specifically on board governance because it was such a relevant topic to overall company success. It's a tough set of personality traits to have. In one sense, I was talking about this with a friend the other day who had a successful exit from their startup and was starting another company. And they said, being a founder requires some level of irrationality. You have to believe that despite overwhelming odds that your company is going to fail because the percent of startups that have a meaningful exit is very small, well below 10%, and maybe even well below 1% for all I know, but you have to be irrational. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, while you have to be irrational and really believe that you know something that other people don't or think something that other people don't, you have to also create this set of checks and balances to say, well, I need to safeguard against my own worst tendencies where I think differently than other people. It's a very hard balance to strike. And I don't think I could think of a founder off the top of my head that perfectly strikes that balance. I think it's just being in somewhat of a range and maybe not being on the extreme ends in either direction is, is maybe the goal. Well, especially because, and we've talked about this before, When you do have a board with proper checks and balances, one of the things that could result is that board eventually comes to the conclusion that you are no longer the right person to lead the company. Right. And so by setting this up with what we would call 
proper process that you are opening yourself up to get fired by your own board. Right. And who sets up their job to potentially get themselves fired at some point? That's a rare trait. A great manager, in my view, eventually prepares their team to replace them because they're going to go on and do something else great. I think Um, that requires a level of confidence that maybe doesn't exist mm. consistently. I can readily recognize that confidence or lack thereof in myself. There were times earlier in my career where I felt pretty far out of my element or where I didn't feel like I was in a quote unquote safe environment career wise, where my natural tendency was to try to harness power Mm. and not because I was ill-intentioned, but rather just because I thought that the, uh, the more I retained some control over things, the less replaceable I was. Particularly, I remember my early days at Uber. I was just really young. I was in my early twenties and barely out of college. I didn't know any better. I didn't know that careers were long and that you didn't need to make perfect steps at every rung of the ladder and all that. I set up a lot of my team to not allow it to function without me to the point that my manager came to me and was like, you need to figure out how to hand some stuff off. You can't be the single point of failure. Later on in my career, as I got more confident and realized, oh, it's just a job. If I don't have this job, I'll get another one. Or the strength of the relationships I build is a lot more important than the specific outcome I've created in this one role, in this one quarter. Then I really focused on, okay, how do I replace myself? Because the only way to move up, to take on more responsibility, to learn, to try out other things would be to have my own stuff boxed up enough that I wasn't necessary for it. That was only later on in my Uber journey. And I think of myself, and maybe this is tooting my own horn a little bit, but I think of myself as a very reflective person and someone who's often trying to think about the why behind things and what's the most considerate approach given all the options and try to take a step back a little bit. If there's a founder who isn't doing that work, which is, I think it's uncommon for people to be super self-reflective. It's a hard exercise and one that requires certain brain pathways that maybe not everyone has. It would be very easy to see why a founder would retain that more early career max mindset of, I need to just harness power because I don't have the confidence that I will land on my feet or the right things will happen if I don't have full control myself. Especially when the sense of success or failure is fairly narrowly defined as a founder, right? right? Like in when you are a manager in a career, you can go be hired by another company. When you are a founder, you get the feeling that your success and failure and the company's success and failure are maybe the same thing. It's harder to tease those two things out. It's also tough when you tie it to your own identity, right? This company did well or poorly, and that is a direct reflection on me. Whereas in reality, you could do all the right things and sometimes it won't work out. And that's not a reflection on you. So I think the more that a founder ties the success or lack thereof of their company to themselves, the less likely they are to be able to make really well thought out decisions. And the more personally they're going to take problems, which is never a good thing. Yep. 100% agree. We've talked about some of these things already, but I'm going to move on to the next topic and we can bounce around it. Stack ranking traits that an ideal founder should have. So you've actually mentioned a couple of these already, but I'm going to list them out and I want you to pick out just one that really stands out to you that 
we haven't talked about already as I would happily, I would pick this every time in a founder. And then I also maybe would ask that you take from this list one where you're like, it's okay if a founder doesn't have this and I would never prioritize it. So here's the list and there's 10 of them or so. Ability to hire, ability to raise money, ability to set a vision and guide the company to achieve it. Ability to operationalize slash make stuff happen. Ability to manage a team. Ethical management of the business. Ability to adjust. Strategic thinking. And boundless drive and energy. Now, you already mentioned the energy one, and you said surrounding yourself with great people. So that's a little bit different than managing a team. Any of these stick out to you as, I need this in every founder. If I'm going to angel invest in a founder, they need to have this one. The one that jumps out to me is ethical management of the business. For me, that is just a non-starter. That's table stakes. I won't touch something with a 10-foot pole if I hear any kind of rumblings that they might be taking shortcuts because that is just, A, I only have one life to live and don't want to you spend want to sleep at any night. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to spend any of my time working with investing in companies where that kind of stuff is going on and then second i feel like that always just comes back to bite you eventually maybe it comes back to bite you in 6 months maybe it comes back to bite you in 6 years but from a long term perspective not someone that i would want to be associated with so for me that's the one that jumps out as I would take this over everything else on the list. That's fair. What's interesting is that I think that one is not necessarily correlated with company success, maybe the least correlated with company success of any of these. Not to say that unethical founders are more likely to be successful, but rather just ethically managing a business does not necessarily mean you're going to have a successful one. It just means you can sleep at night. However, I completely agree with you. I do think that the bad guys win sometimes, and that's just an unfortunate outcome of life. However, I also want to sleep at night. I also want to feel good about the work that I do. And I want to feel good about where I put my money and I want to feel good about the people I work with. So despite ethical management of the business, not being something that necessarily directly correlates with success, the same way that the ability to manage a team might, I also agree it is table stakes. Let's take away this. I don't know that it correlates success, but it definitely correlates with fabulous failure. Fair enough. Yes, you're referring to the Sam Bankman Freed type situation. Yes. The lack of uh, it results in a higher likelihood of failure. Yes, it's a much That's higher fair. risk endeavor if yes. you are investing or partnering with someone like this. But yeah, we can take this one off the table because it's almost a completely separate animal. I like, yeah, I like that. Next one. We are assuming that every company we work with has a founder who ethically manages the business. Now, what do you want from that founder? All of them. (laughs) Um, Find me a founder who has all of them. I will give them all of my money. And of course, that's why VC, which is doing this for money and not for sport, is an industry where the returns are very not uniform across investors, is that getting this right is hard. And if there was an obvious right answer, we would all be rich. But in my personal experience, the one that jumps out at me is the ability to operationalize and make stuff happen, 
what I have seen, the longer I work with founders and startups, the more I become convinced, and I believe that this was true at Uber as well, that your ability to operationalize whatever it is that you're doing is more important than having the right strategy or the right vision. I know we talked a lot in the beginning of this conversation about the importance of mission and vision and, and having that be connected to your business. Yeah. But I would argue, and I see this a lot with folks that come to me and they want to raise money and they're like, I have the best idea. Everyone is going to want to invest in this idea because it is the best idea. Every founder is convinced that their baby is the most beautiful baby. Sure. But if it was just ideas that helped you build a great company, we would have way more unicorns than we have. And what the longer I work with them, the longer, the more they become convinced and I become convinced that there is so much more than the idea and it's your ability to actually turn that into reality which is what makes you a great founder could not agree with this more to me i think ideas are a dime a dozen and i think founders have a lot of ideas i have always enjoyed and this is literally what i built my business on the concept that other people are gonna have great ideas there's lots of people with ideas there's very few people can execute on them and i always say in my sales pitch i don't have good ideas you have the ideas i just help you make them reality because I think that there are a lot fewer people who execute effectively. And I, I really enjoy playing in that space. And I completely agree with you. There is a double-edged sword here. And I think it's that the ability to operationalize is not, I know exactly what to do and will tell people to do it. And the episode that I haven't published yet, but will be out by the time people hear this one, talks about the, one of the major failures of managers is telling people how rather mm. than what you as a manager, it's your job to say, here's the outcome we want to get to, and then enable it to happen by supporting people to get to that, but not to both say, here's the outcome we want to get to. And here's exactly how you will do it because that's not enabling your people. That's just telling them what to do. You're losing out on all the innovation and ideas and knowledge and experience that your team has. And if you've hired great people, you want that. You want to take advantage of that. So the ability to operationalize is not, I know exactly what to do. And I can tell everyone exactly how to do it. It's, I can define the end state. This is what we want to get to. And then I can help make that happen by greasing wheels, by creating the right boundaries and helping people move in that direction. I was torn between operationalize and ability to adjust because you can't really have one be successful without the other. If you're That's just true. pivoting constantly without actually testing stuff, you're not getting anywhere. But if you're operationalizing without learning from what you're doing and then adjusting, you're also not getting anywhere. So it's those two things in tandem, which is, okay, I have a, a hypothesis and I work a lot with clients that have a lot of ideas of this is how stuff is going to work. And for whatever reason, they're hesitant to just get out and test it. And so the more you can just get stuff out, get out, this is the lean startup hypothesis of getting stuff out and testing and learning from it, then you get that ability to adjust. I think that what I'm describing is more for a small startup when you're doing more of this yourself. I think your point is on as you're growing, you're not the one doing this you are creating a culture and a team where people are doing this where your team is doing this where you have the exactly. culture of 
get stuff out there, do stuff, make things happen, and then learn from it. That's exactly right. Your job at the end of the day, particularly as your company grows, it's not to do almost anything. It's to hire great people and, and make them do good work. The way that you are successful as a founder is how you help other people be successful. Because as, as the company grows, there are going to be a lot more of them and proportionally a lot less of you. And so if, if you think that you doing things is the way to move forward, you're inevitably going to be wrong. And you as a founder need to help others be successful in order for your company to be successful. I think it was Steve Jobs, and he's the most oft quoted of, <laughs> of people by founders, but he said, basically, all I do is hire great people. That's the only thing that makes Apple more successful than other companies. He obviously had incredible vision and, and strategy, but that was powered by him bringing on exceptional people and then enabling them to do great work. Not because he was yeah, designing think, transistors himself. And he wasn't the first person who had the idea for a tablet. He was the one that executed it well because he had a team that executed it well. But yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about this list. I the How I would stack rank this is obviously going to change from a founder on day one to what makes a great founder at the five-year mark. The ability to hire well, I would say, comes in early or earlier, an ability to manage a team comes in earlier than you might think. But it, this does obviously shift over time, which is why you see it's so uncommon for the original founder to still be the founder 10 years later, it's or just still be the CEO really 10 hard, years later. It's really hard to have all of those traits. It's totally different skill sets. You're absolutely right. And that's also why I think when founders reach that point of being replaced, it is absolutely not a failure. It's just a reflection of the company's reached a point where your skill set is no longer the most useful one for the company's future success. That's okay. It's just saying you're not perfect at everything. And no one is. And we had a lot more to cover, but the, we just dived so deep on all these topics. We're over an hour now, so I'm cut it off here. First of all, Chrissy, this is awesome. Thank you for uh, bringing your expertise. Uh, would love to have you on again, no pressure now that it's out in the ether, have you on again at some point to discuss other topics related to running companies that feel like this flowed very well and the time passed quickly, but thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. There's I so agree. many more topics to cover here and they're all so interrelated. When we tried to stack rank, we were said, we're, we're going to isolate the one thing that you need. And everything all impacts each other. But that's because humans are complex beings and not robots, which we is what indeed. makes management way harder than anything else that that's you can right. do. Well, uh, thank you all for listening and hope you join us next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Management 101. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave a comment or a review. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Management 101, and we'll catch you in the next episode.